1 Peter chapter 1, tonight's scripture reading is the first two verses. Tonight starts a new sermon series. And before I read this, let me pray. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have united us to Christ by your Spirit, and your Spirit is alive within us. We come to you asking for your help. Help us as we hear your word. Help us as we seek to understand it and apply it to our lives. Father, I think of the parable of the sower and the word that fell on different kinds of soil. Father, I pray that by your spirit, your word tonight would fall on good soil and reap so much fruit. So we pray that confidently because of Christ who reigns at your right hand and because your spirit who is alive within us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First Peter, the first two verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Asia and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. During college, I studied abroad for a semester at a small seminary in Edinburgh, Scotland. It was a great experience, and I could tell you a lot about the people, the places, the food, the castles, but what I want us to think about tonight is the experience of living as a foreigner. Think about what it's like to live as a foreigner in a different place, in a different country. Every day, I was faced with the fact that I didn't belong there. I didn't look Scottish. I didn't sound Scottish. I, I stuck out. This wasn't my home. I was a citizen of the United States living in Edinburgh. We can be foreigners in this physical sense. We can travel or live in other countries as non-citizens, but Christians are also foreigners in a spiritual sense. In a spiritual sense. <laughs> I listened to a podcast about two weeks ago, and the host was interviewing a pastor from Scotland, a conservative pastor, and that pastor was asked about Kate Forbes, a Christian who is running for first minister of Scotland, and here's what the pastor said, Scotland used to be known as the land of the people of the book, and in my view, we've secularized quicker than any nation in human history. I would say that the spiritual atmosphere is particularly dark with the new kind of progressive religion having taken over as a state religion and that biblical Christians are increasingly isolated and indeed under attack as Kate Forbes has been. Kate Forbes is from Scotland. She's a native to Scotland, but she's a spiritual foreigner. She's a Christian living in a non-Christian society, a society that says that her faith makes her unfit to be the first minister. As a Christian, 
This is the world in which you live. You live as a spiritual foreigner, and that means this book is for you. It's for you and me. The Apostle Peter wrote this letter, this book, 1 Peter, to Christians who lived in troubling times. He wrote to Christians like us who are increasingly marginalized and opposed, even persecuted by the society in which we live. So what does Peter have to say to us? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to chapter 5, verse 12. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12. This is also printed on page 8 of your worship guide. It's on the Reflections page. What does Peter have to say to Christians like you and me? Peter writes in verse 12, chapter 5, By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, encouraging or exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Exhorting, declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. In this letter, Peter declares to you the true grace of God. As an apostle, he authoritatively bears witness to Jesus Christ, to the crucified, risen, ascended, coming Christ, and he exhorts you to live as a Christian. Live as a Christian. Stand firm in the true grace of God. That's what this letter is about. So how would you encourage Kate Forbes? How would you encourage a brother in Christ who's suffering for his faith? What encouragement do you need as you live as a spiritual foreigner in Mount Joy, in E-Town, in Lancaster, wherever you might live? What encouragement do we need? In these opening verses, Peter greets Christians both a long, long time ago and today. He greets us with a reminder of who we are. You are an elect exile. You are an elect exile. Let's start with what Peter says second. He says that you are exiles. He writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. The historical context for this letter is really, really interesting. We can only scratch the service tonight. But he wrote this letter to Christians who lived in the area of what is now called Turkey. So think of that big earthquake that happened several weeks ago. That's Turkey. So he wrote to Christians who lived in this area, more north than where the earthquake happened. And this area, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, it covered an area of approximately 130,000 square miles. As a comparison, California is about 160,000 square miles. So this area was a little bit smaller than the state of California. It's a big area, a big area. It's not like he's writing to Mount Joy, E-Town, Mountville. He, he's writing to a big area. A big area with lots of small, isolated cities, and the people who live there are very diverse, very different, lots of different peoples. So, 
in what sense were these Christians exiles of the dispersion? What, what does that mean? In what sense were they exiles of the dispersion? It could be the case that these Christians were quite literally exiles. That they were literally exiles. They may have been Christians who had left Rome, either because they wanted to, or more likely because they were forced to leave, and they had resettled in these areas, in what's referred to as Asia Minor. We know that the emperor Claudius, this was one of the Roman emperors, who reigned in this time, he established Roman cities in all five of these provinces, all five of these regions, the emperor Claudius. We also know that this same emperor expelled Jews from Rome. Why? Why would he kick Jews out of Rome? A Roman historian said that it was on account of a certain Crestus. Maybe the historian meant Christus, the Latin word for Christ. So this (coughs) Roman emperor kicked Jews out of Rome on account of Christ. So in Asia Minor, these Christians were quite literally foreigners. They were exiles of the dispersion. They had been dispersed. They had been scattered, but not by Babylon, not by Assyria, by the Romans. Now, we can't be certain that this was the exact historical situation. When we're talking 2,000 years ago, it can be hard to know exactly what happened. But if it was... What Peter's doing here is he's taking their physical situation. They're living in a foreign land. They don't belong there. And he's using it, their physical situation, to explain that they are not only physical foreigners, but spiritual foreigners. They were Christians living in a foreign, ungodly society. In that sense, these first century Christians were just like you and me. As a Christian, you belong to God's true people who are living in a non-Christian society. In that sense, you too are an exile of the dispersion. We are exiles of the dispersion. As I thought about this passage, I thought about my experience at public school, K-12, through at Donegal, it was generally an acceptable thing to call yourself a Christian. Lots of people called themselves Christians. So generally, it was a good thing to say, I'm a Christian, I go to church. But far fewer of my peers were actually trying to follow Jesus. Far fewer people were actually trying to follow Jesus. And when I did, I, I felt unpopular. And at times I was. I felt like the oddball out. At times, I felt like a spiritual exile. And that's because I was. I was. As a Christian, you need to know, Peter's saying, you need to know that you are a spiritual exile. Do not expect to fit in with the society around you. Expect to be unpopular. Expect unfair treatment because you're a Christian. In relation to a non-Christian society around you, you are an exile. By using the phrase, exiles of the dispersion, Peter also wants you to know something else. 
He wants you to know that you're not the first spiritual exile. You're not the first. Christians didn't start becoming spiritual exiles in the 21st century. To be an exile is to belong to the true people of God throughout redemptive history. His true people have lived in the midst of foreign, ungodly societies for a long, long time. If you think back to the Old Testament, Abraham wandered in Canaan and said to the Canaanites, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner among you. God's people were foreigners in Egypt for many years. God's people were eventually exiled and dispersed from the promised land. But the prophets spoke of a return from exile. That's why we read from Isaiah 40. That's one of those passages that speaks of hope, hope for people in exile. And this return from exile happened in a a surprising way, as we know. Jesus came to suffer and die for his people's sins. Jesus, the true ultimate foreigner, came to his own and his own didn't receive him. Believers in the crucified and risen Christ are saved. We have entered the kingdom of God and we're waiting for the final coming of that kingdom when we are no longer foreigners. This means as we wait, as we wait for the coming, the final coming, the final consummation of Christ's kingdom, we are exiles. The irony, of course, is that non-Christians won't inherit this earth. Christians will. You will. Christians will inherit the earth. Non-Christians will find themselves to be foreigners when God's people inherit the new earth at Christ's return. That's where all of history is heading. But until that day comes, until God's people inherit the new earth, we are exiles. You are a spiritual exile. But that's not all. Peter also wants you to know that you are an elect exile. The word exile reminds us of who we are in a horizontal dimension. Who are we in relation to the people around us, the society around us? But the word elect refers to the the vertical dimension. Who are we in relation to God? And Peter wants you to remember, you are God's elect. You are his elect. Just like the word exile, exile of the dispersion, this word, elect, is a word that's rich in Old Testament significance and reassurance. He uses this word on purpose. And like God's people in the Old Testament, you are God's elect. You are chosen by God. God said to his people many years ago, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Why? Why did God choose you? Why did he choose me? The Lord goes on in that verse to say, because the Lord loves you. Because the Lord loves you. Before the foundation of the world, God chose you because he loves you. This is what we need to know as we live as, non, as, we live as Christians in a non-Christian society. The world will hate you but God loves you. The world will reject you, but God chose you. The world will disparage you, but God delights in you. The world looks on you with disfavor, but God, God looks on you with favor. 
The world is hostile to you, but you have peace with God. You are his elect. So Peter is saying, friends, remember remember who you are. Remember whose you are. You belong to God. You are his elect. And Peter could have stopped there, but he didn't. He could have said, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let me get on to my letter. He doesn't. He could have said less, but he says more. He says a lot more. It's as though he's saying, I can't just drop the word elect and not explain. I can't flesh this out for you, brothers and sisters. Let me, let me remind you of what it means to be God's elect. Can I, can I remind you once again? Let me tell you what this means. And Peter says, you have been chosen. You are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So let's look at these three phrases one by one. First, Peter says, you are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. He uses the word foreknowledge. He uses a form of this same word a little later in the chapter. So if you have your Bible, look with me at chapter 1, verse 20. Chapter 1, verse 20. Peter says this, referring to Christ. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. He says Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. So in what sense are both the elect and Christ foreknown by God? What do you, maybe a way to put it is, what do you have in common with, with Christ in this whole matter of being foreknown? What it means is that both Christ and his people were the objects of God's love from all eternity. That's what it means. Both Christ and his people were the objects of God's love from all of eternity. To put it another way, even before creation, God chose both the people who, who would be redeemed and the Savior who would redeem them. That's what it means to be foreknown. God foreknew Christ. You will save my people. And he foreknew his people. You, my son, will save them. Like Christ, you were the object of God's love, of his active delight, of his fatherly election from all of eternity. From all of eternity. His love for you didn't start after Christ died on the cross, or after Jesus was raised from the dead, or after Jesus ascended into heaven, or after you were born, or after you were given new birth in Christ. No, his love for you started before time even started. That's what Peter's reminding us of here. He's saying, remember whose you are, brothers and sisters. You are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. What do you and I need? What do we need? What do we need to know as we live in the society that God has placed us in. What do we need to know? We need to know 
as we face the perplexing, difficult reality of living as a spiritual foreigner, that we are everlastingly loved by God. God loves you. The foreknowledge of God makes us look into eternity past, a long, 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 long time ago. It makes us look into the past. But the next phrase, I think, really brings us into the present. Peter started way back there. Now he brings us to the present. Those whom God foreknew from all of eternity are set apart as his people in space and time. Peter puts it this way. You are chosen in the sanctification of the Spirit. In the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of the word sanctification, I typically think of the work of God's grace in making me more and more like Christ. And that's, that's what we call progressive sanctification. God makes us more and more like Christ. The Bible also speaks of sanctification as an act by which God sets us apart. Both a work of God's grace and an act of God's grace. An act by which he sets us apart. That's why the Bible speaks of the people of God as being saints. Don't think halos around your head, but think of God's ordinary people who are set apart by no one less than the Spirit of God. The Spirit irrevocably set us apart from the world and brought us into the kingdom of God, and now he's making us more and more holy. To use an illustration from uh, a few sermons ago from, from Troy, he talked about how as a, as a kid, we sometimes put on our parents' shirts. And he talked about how God, in a sense, has put his shirt on us and we are growing up into it. We are growing up into Christ. What Peter is focusing here, what he's focusing on here is the fact that the shirt has been put on us. The shirt has been put on you. This act of God by which the Spirit has set you apart. The shirt's on And of course, that leads to growing up into it, filling it out more and more. I once thought that I would grow up to be as big as my dad. His shoes are still, I still don't, I still don't fit his shoes. They're so big. But uh, you get the illustration. So, if we are chosen by God in the sanctification of the Spirit, this is why we march to a different drum than our society. Of course, this is why you are a misfit in today's culture. This is why you aren't comfortable in this world. The Spirit united you to Christ, and Christ isn't here. He's in heaven. Your life is in heaven with Christ. Your citizenship ultimately is in heaven where Christ is. The trials you experience as an exile in this world are no accident. The opposition you face from an unbelieving world is no mistake. You have been chosen in the sanctification of the Spirit. That's what Peter wants you to remember, to know, to take to heart. He's not yet finished. He has more to say. Last but certainly not least, you are chosen for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling by his blood. And we'll we'll explain what this means. But as a quick aside, do you notice the Trinitarian theme here? God the Father, the Spirit, 
Jesus Christ. One God, three persons. The doctrine of the Trinity was not invented by church councils. It's not a creation of man. Peter is showing us that each person of the Trinity plays a special role in your salvation. In your salvation. And why does that matter? It matters because it's precisely this Trinitarian-shaped salvation that empowers you to persevere in the midst of the society in which we live. God, Father, Son, and Spirit, has saved you, and you will persevere. You can't do anything but persevere. This triune God has saved you. So he's already talked about the role of the Father in foreknowing us and the role of the Spirit in sanctifying us. What role does Jesus Christ play in our salvation? Peter says that we are elect or chosen for obedience to Jesus Christ and for strengthening by his blood. This, we think, is a clear allusion to Exodus 24. And I included these verses on the Reflections page. So you can either turn there, page 8 of your worship guides, or you can turn to Exodus 24. I'll read verses 3 to 8. Exodus 24, verses 3 to 8. It seems like this is what Peter is alluding to. Uh, Remember the context. God has brought his people out of Egypt. He has brought them to Mount Sinai. He has given them the Ten Commandments. And now he confirms the covenant with his people. Listen to these verses. Listen for the themes of obedience and blood. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took Half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people, and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you, in accordance with all these words. What's involved in a covenant relationship between God and his people? Here, we see that two things, two things that are involved are obedience and blood. Obedience and blood. This is what we see here in the old covenant. God's people are sprinkled with the blood. Their sins have been atoned for. This covenant has been sealed. And it's a covenant in which they pledge their obedience to God. They have a new master, a new Lord. That's what Peter is saying. He's saying, remember that old covenant? The new covenant has come. The new covenant has come. And you have been sprinkled, not with the blood of oxen, but with the blood of Christ. And your obedience is to Jesus. You have been chosen by God for this new covenant in the blood of Christ. That's what Peter is saying. God chose you for the purpose of obedience to Christ and for the purpose of the atoning of your sins by his blood. You have been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. He's your Savior. 
you have also submitted to him, pledging your obedience to him. So he is your Lord. Once again, is it any wonder that we don't fit in this world? Is it any wonder that we don't belong? You have been chosen for obedience. Not for obedience to the agendas of this world, but for obedience to the King of Kings who atoned for your sins by his blood. You belong to his kingdom, and that makes you a misfit in the kingdoms of this world. That makes you an elect exile in the kingdoms of this world. Earlier I mentioned Kate Forbes, the, the Christian woman who's running for First Minister of Scotland. And the pastor who was being interviewed also said this. He said, Nobody denies that Forbes is by far the most competent of the candidates who are standing for First Minister. What they are now questioning is whether someone who, who holds to socially conservative views is fit, even fit, to be First Minister. So it's not a question of what you will do, but a question of who you are. It's a question of who you are. It's a question of who you are. Kate Forbes is being persecuted for the fact that she is a Christian. You and I, to one extent or another, will be persecuted or are being persecuted because we are Christians. And what is it that we need to hear? What is it that God's people in this situation need to hear? We need to be reminded of who we are. Who we are. You are an elect exile. You are an elect exile. Both of those things are so important. Elect and exile. And God greets you, his chosen people, with these closing words in verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Amen.